Our reading today is from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 11 to chapter 4, verse 1. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priests. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come, would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't, accept any, he won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would, Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home, and the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they had slept with the woman who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about the wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to his father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with the people. Now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestor's family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestor's family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourself on the choice parts of every offering made by the people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that members of your family would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house so that no one in it will reach old age and you will, and you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel, no one in your family line will ever reach old age. Every one of you that I do not cuff, cut off from serving my altar, I will spare only to destroy your sight and sap your strength and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be assigned to you. They will both die on the same day. 
I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what's in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish my priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread and plead. Appoint me to have some appoint me to some priestly office so that I can have food to eat. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, here I am, and he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I did not call, go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again, the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call, go back and lie down. Now Samuel didn't, did not yet know that the Lord, the word of the Lord, had not yet been revealed to him. A third time the Lord called, Samuel, and Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down, and if he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there, calling, as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke about against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons uttered blasphemies against God, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house would never be atoned for by any sacrifice or offering. Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision, but Eli called Samuel and said to him, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered, here I am. What was it that he said to you? Eli asked, do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, he is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words, words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Bathsheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines at Arphek. This is God's word. My name's Phil. I'm the associate vicar. Let's pray. Father God, when we understand what these words mean, we realise that we are in desperate need of your help. Father, by, by nature, every one of us wants to resist your word. And so we pray that you, by your spirit, would miraculously enable us to repent where we need to, to trust in the Lord Jesus and to rejoice in the hope of his judgment. Amen. 
Now, it won't have escaped your notice that we're in something of a leadership crisis in the nation at the moment. And it matters because we need leaders. Leaders, they set the tone, they drive the culture, they determine the behaviour of others. So if, uh, to pick a perfectly random example, if there happened to be a law that it was illegal to, um, to drink alcohol or to have a party, and it emerged, imagine it, that um, the leaders were ignoring the law and having boozy parties, um, well, the impact that that would have, should such a thing happen, would, the likelihood is, nobody else would take that law very seriously. The leaders don't, why should we? For that reason, whatever you make of her, you've got to say Jacinda Ardern got it right this weekend, cancelling her wedding because she said, look, if New Zealand's in lockdown, I'm not going to be doing this, whether it's technically legal or not. Yeah, that's called leadership. You set the tone. You say, no, we're taking this seriously. Whatever you make of the rights and wrongs, that's, that's the way to at least, whatever you make of the rules themselves, that's the way you lead. Now, if you missed uh, last week, we're just getting going in a, in a new series, going through the book of 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel begins with a leadership crisis. That's what's going on. And so the Israelites, they entered the promised land 350 years ago under Joshua. And the time of the judges, that's uh, Samson, Gideon, Deborah, and all the rest, that's coming to an end. And it is an awful time for ordinary people. If you just want to live your life and get on with serving God and raising your family, it's a miserable time to be alive. The very last verse of Judges reads, In those days Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. The lack of leadership has left an utterly miserable mess in the nation. And 1 Samuel is God's answer. But just in case we, we're fooled into thinking the issue is leadership structures. Oh, you know, <laughs> if only they had a democracy, all this would have been all right. They just need a modern, secular, liberal democracy and everything would be fine. Now, 1 Samuel 2 and 3, they show us the issue is not the leadership structures. That uh, switching from having judges to having a king is going to make all the difference. No, the issue is character. They're suffering because the leaders they do have have closed their ears and hardened their hearts to the word of God. That's the problem. Now, these verses, I don't know what you made of them as we read them, but they are enormously relevant. They're relevant to us each as individuals as we encounter God's word, even as we encounter it right now. But they're also relevant to us as a community, as we seek to make sure that we have leadership patterns that both honour God and that enable everybody to flourish. That's what good leadership does. It enables everybody to flourish. Okay, you've got the, uh, you've got the points on the sheet. We'll spend um, the longest time actually in the first point. Eli's sons were wicked in what they did do and Eli was wicked in what he didn't. Chapter 2 and verse 12. This is just after Hannah's song. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the law. Hannah's song, just, uh, just before that, the first half of chapter 2, promised God would bring down, verse 3, the arrogant, the well-fed, verse 5, the wicked. 
And we don't have to wait long before we see who's in the crosshairs of God's judgment. And it's not the colonial oppressors, the Philistines, who we'll meet properly next week. As 1 Peter 4 puts it, judgment will begin in the household of God. Eli is the chief priest and Eli's sons serve at the temple, the tent as it is then in Shiloh. But it's pretty obvious that the only people they serve are themselves. Verse 13. Now it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. That's how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said, let the fat be burned first, then take whatever you want. The servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. What on earth's going on? Um, not immediately obvious, is it? But the Bible decreed that the, the sacrifices that are going on, effectively there are three parts to it. Part of it is burned up, including the fat, and that is it's burned up in devotion to God. Part of it is eaten as a meal. It's cooked and eaten as a meal by the worshipper to celebrate their fellowship with God, that they have access to God, they have forgiveness and a relationship with God. And then part of it is given to the priests as their food, their support. But Hophni and Phinehas would send their henchmen with the infamous three-pronged fork, which wasn't prescribed by God, it was just invented by them, and they would grab whatever they wanted, even before the meal had been cooked by the worshippers. It's like somebody interrupting the Lord's Supper afterwards as Matt's conducting, as Scott's conducting the liturgy and just grabbing the plate off him, shoveling in a whole load of the, of the bread and then glugging down the wine. Like, what? What's the problem? I was hungry. I don't care. Walking off. Uh, okay, that's just a little bit offensive, isn't it? Actually, it's not the worst of it that it's offensive to the people. Verse 17. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. The offerings belonged to God. The issue isn't so much they're stealing the people's food, although that's wicked. They're stealing from God. And that's not all they're doing. If you jump forward to to verse 22. Now Eli, who was very old, heard everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. There is an appalling irony to what we read here. Hundreds of years earlier, as the Israelites had been journeying through the wilderness towards the promised land, they had started to get stuck in with some of the pagan worship of the people around them, especially the Moabites, as they, as they neared the promised land. And the pagan practices often involved sex with shrine prostitutes. And in one particularly appalling incident in Numbers 25, an Israelite man takes a Moabite woman and they have sex at the entrance to the tent of the Lord. And God's judgment is going to fall on the people. They're saved, they're only saved because a priest acts and kills the man and the woman. The name of the priest? 
Phineas. How ironic. Now, given the behaviour with the meats, I think we're probably right to see the behaviour with the women as predatory and probably abusive. That just seems to be their way of behaving. They take advantage of the people and steal their food, and they take advantage of the women, and they sleep with them. Now, do you know what's missing? Do you notice what's missing from the account of Hophni and Phineas's abuse, these two priests? We learn nothing about their gifts. We don't know whether they, they preached the most amazing sermons when people gathered to worship. We, we don't know whether the number of people coming for worship at Shiloh just increased sixfold while they were there. And the offerings at the tent, it was incredible the amount of money they were able to raise and how beautiful the Lord's tent was made to look. And you just, it's incredible, just the sheer number of young men that they trained up into priesthood, extraordinary ministry that they exercised. We don't know any of that. Because it just doesn't matter. Who cares how gifted they were? when their character is so utterly wicked. When you turn to the New Testament and you look at the qualifications for leaders amongst God's people, especially in 1 Timothy 3 and in in Titus 1, you see the vast majority of the qualifications are character rather than gifts and abilities. It is godliness that God cares about most in the leaders of his people. Now, these verses with Hophni and Phinehas, I do find them sobering, even a little terrifying. Here are two people who are more involved in the ministry of God's people than anybody else in all Israel. And yet this is how they behave. It's a warning, you can be involved in ministry, you can lead a small group, you can pastor a church and yet be utterly, utterly depraved. C.S. Lewis famously observed, there are no hands quite so sinful as those that have been cauterized by touching holy things. So much for the sons. Well, what did their father Eli make of it all? Verse 22, as we just read, he heard everything his sons were doing. So verse 23. So he said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Eli's appalled. Rightly, he recognises, verse 23, their behaviour is wicked. Rightly, he he recognises that the most serious offence is not actually what they're doing to the other people. It's that they're offending against God, 
Verse 25, they're spitting in the face of their only hope of forgiveness. What hope have you got if you treat God this way? He's the only chance of forgiveness and you're behaving this way to him. He speaks, but he does nothing. He doesn't sack them as priests. He doesn't drive them out of Shiloh. The most scandalous wickedness gets just ticking off from old Eli. Del Ralph Davis, the commentator, describes Eli's behaviour here as gutless compassion. Eli lacks the courage or the love for God to discipline his sons. Now we're tempted to say he loves his sons too much and God not enough, but he, actually he doesn't love his sons at all. If he really loved his sons, he would have disciplined them years ago because the trajectory they're on, the path they're walking on, leads them to the eternal condemnation of Almighty God. And a loving father should not leave his sons to walk there unopposed. Real love would have taken real action. Now I guess verse 25 makes many of us squirm. His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke. For it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Now, I don't know how many other warnings and tickings off they've ignored or (laughs) just laughed off down the years. Yeah, whatever, Dad. But eventually, the Lord says, enough. And the door to his forgiveness and grace, which has been open for so, so long, It's shut. And they'll get what they deserve. Now you hear that and you think, uh, okay, (laughs) when does that happen? (laughs) I mean, how long does the Lord leave the door of his grace open for? You know what the answer is? Don't wait to find out. Repent now, tonight, come back to Jesus. Turn to him for the first time. Or we wonder, what if I've already reached that point? What if I've already gone too far? What if it's already too late for me? The answer is the same. Repent now. Come back to Jesus tonight. And then you'll know for certain it's not too late. But if the Holy Spirit is unsettling your conscience, then I beg you, do not put him off. See, the longer you live hardening your heart to some things God's word says, the greater the danger. The day will come when you can no longer hear the warnings anymore. Remember too, none of us know how things lie with other people. So when it comes to other people, keep offering God's grace every day they're alive. Some here know the incredible blessing of seeing uh, parents, elderly relatives turn to God right in the last days of their life. So keep holding out the grace of God. There is depravity, there is darkness, 
and there are dreadful things here. But there are glimmers of hope. The section ends with just this little comment, and the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favour with the Lord and with the people. And the account of, of the son's wickedness and Eli's pathetic attempt to discipline them, they sandwich this strange little bit about Samuel's clothing. Verse 18, but Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife saying, may the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home and the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now the ephod, actually that's a priestly garment. Samuel's not from a priestly tribe, but it's a priestly garment. You see that from the prophet's word over in verse 28. As he, he says, I gave your ancestors, Eli, to wear an ephod in my presence to be, part, to be priests. It's just a hint. Just a hint. God will raise up better priests than Hophni and Phinehas. And the blessing of Hannah is a hint, just a hint, that even in the ruins, God hasn't given up on his people. In the face of this institutional corruption and mass abuse, it, it probably seems just trivial and, and too tiny to hold on to, but, but it is a hint that God is at work. And as we heard last week, God always seems to start in unpromising places with ordinary people. hundred years ago, Chicago was a pretty miserable place to, to live. Around this time, a hundred years ago, a man named Alfonso Capone moved from New York to Chicago and started a reign of terror for the best part of a decade. By 1929, he seemed untouchable, politicians, police, judiciary, everybody who might oppose him and bring an end to his brutal mob rule was either in his pocket or terrified of what he might do if they opposed him. Most famously on February the 14th, 1929, he, uh, he got um, either corrupt police officers or some police uniforms and arrested seven members of a rival mob, lined them up against a wall and just machine gunned them to pieces called the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, got away with it scot-free. He was making millions and millions and millions. And the people of Chicago were suffering under his abusive rule. And in the midst of that, when you, when you learn that a US Treasury official named Frank Wilson has been asked to uh, look into the tax affairs of Al Capone, it just seems, <laughs> so what? It's big deal. Look into his tax returns. The guy's slaughtering dozens of people every month and, and running the whole of Chicago is, is basically a mob enterprise. Big deal. But of course, only a couple of years later, Capone's brought to trial for tax evasion, imprisoned, where he dies and his rule is ended. A small boy in an ephod sewed by his mother seems... It seems just a trivial detail amidst the sexual abuse and the, and the disgraceful carry-on that passed for worship at Shiloh. But it is the beginnings of God's work to raise up the leader that his people need. God is at work. 
Okay, so what is God going to do? We have this little hint, but what is he going to do about Eli and his sons? We find out as a nameless prophet appears on the scene. The Lord will bring down Eli's family, for they despise his word. Verse 27 of chapter 2. Now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honour your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? God begins by reminding Eli of the privilege that he has as being a priest. God chose the descendants of Aaron within the tribe of Levi and made them his priests. They got to to live near the presence of God on earth. They got to, to, to serve God. They had greater access to the Lord than any other human beings. He also reminds us why Eli is guilty. Eli may not have been abusing the worshippers himself. Oh, he was very f- happy getting fat on, on the food his son stole, though. He had no conscience about juicy steak that he knew had been robbed off a worshipper of God. So secondly, God pronounces his judgment through the prophet. Verse 30, Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised members of your family would minister before me forever, but now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honour me I will honour, and those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house, so that no one in it will reach old age, and you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel, no one in your family line will reach old age. Every one of you that I do not cut off from serving at my altar, I'll spare only to destroy your sight and sap your strength, and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. It's a brutal verdict. God had promised Aaron's descendants would be his priests, but God is a holy God and will not be mocked. So while Aaron's descendants will be his priests. While that family tree will remain the priestly tree, the branch of Eli's family will be ripped off and thrown in the fire. Thirdly, here is the pronouncement of what will happen to his sons. And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be a sign to you. They will both die on the same day. I'll raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread and plead, appoint me to some priestly office so I can have some food to eat. God announces, Eli, your sons will die on the same day before you. And Eli does nothing. God's promises of judgment in the Bible, they're they're there to provoke repentance. So uh, in Jonah 3, Jonah declares God's message to the people of Nineveh. In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. That's the entirety of the message. But the Ninevites hear and they repent and they turn away from their evil ways and they beg God for mercy and so God doesn't judge them. 
See, God's promises of judgment, they're like a, a parent who sees a, a distracted child backing towards a cliff edge. Like, don't, don't, you're going to fall. And the child hears and moves to safety. Oh, the word failed. I mean, you said they were going to fall and they didn't fall. <laughs> Can't rely on anything you say, can I? No, no, no. The, the word succeeded. The whole point of speaking that, that word was that it wouldn't happen. So too with God's judgment. He speaks a word of judgment so that the people will come back to him. But Eli does nothing. Please don't be like Eli. When you hear the warnings of God's judgment in Scripture, whether it's the general warning that unless you turn to Jesus Christ, you will face God's eternal judgment. Or whether it's the, as a Christian, you hear what God says about sin. You hear his anger at sin. When you hear God's pronouncements of judgment, respond with repentance. Turn away from sin. Turn back to God. Come to Jesus. Come back to Jesus and do it tonight. His arms of grace are open, so come back to him. Thirdly, the Lord will raise up Samuel, who heeds his word. God's not going to leave his people leaderless. He won't bring down ungodly leaders without, at the same time, also raising up the godly leadership. And the first step comes as a little boy has a a disturbed night of sleep. Chapter 3, verse 1. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. Now, in the Old Testament time, God's word came to his people in a variety of ways. Dreams, visions, direct speech, angels, all sorts of ways. So why here in verse 1, as we're being told that God's word was rarely heard, does he stress visions, which is about seeing rather than hearing? It just seems a bit odd, doesn't it? Well, because of the next comment about Eli's failing eyesight, the author is hinting that Eli is spiritually as well as physically, almost blind. Verse 4. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I didn't call you. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. I have to say, I can... This is a section of the Bible which right now I feel a real resonance with, having small children who aren't very good at staying asleep. But there we go. Um, It has never been the Lord at night. It has always been a small child. But Eli said, I did not call, go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again the Lord called, Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. Oh, my son, Eli said, I did not call, go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, go and lie down, and if he calls you, 
Say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Should Eli have twigged a bit earlier? Nobody else is calling. It must be the Lord. I don't know. Samuel doesn't realize, but then we're told Samuel doesn't know the Lord. But when God does speak, Samuel's ready to listen. Verse 10. The Lord came and stood there, calling as at the other time, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, see, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons uttered blasphemies against God and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Yeah, let's talk about a tough first assignment. Samuel's a little kid. I imagine, you know, September, we get the new ministry interns. First Sunday, great, your first Sunday, you're doing a children's slot on hell. I mean, really, no, no, seriously, that's, that's just not fair. That's, that's far too hard a thing to ask of somebody as the first thing they do. God knows what he's doing. The question is, will Samuel honour God or will he please the people and serve himself? Actually, Eli's very best moment in the whole of 1 Samuel comes here as he charges Samuel to tell him the truth, no matter the consequences. Verse 15, Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision. But Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered, here I am. What was it he said to you, Eli asked? Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, he is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. Now, I don't know how we're meant to respond to what Eli says there, but again, it's resignation, not repentance. I think again he fails. But just as Hannah prayed, while the wealthy wicked are being brought low, the humble who seek God are raised up. Verse 19. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh. And, or literally for, there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. It's not the main point, but I can't help but highlight verse 21. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, for there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. God's word is not just words. We encounter God. We meet God. God is revealed to us as we read, as we hear his word. So the author says, the Lord appeared as his word is spoken. Now, these verses at the end, the call of Samuel, they are, um, they are like the, the softening of the sky before dawn. At the moment, I have to get up to, um, to take the dog out 
quite early and it's, it's pretty pitch black. But in just in the last week, in the last week as I've taken him out, there's just been, while it's still freezing cold and pretty unpleasant, on the far edge of the eastern sky, when you get to the top of the road and can see the horizon, there is just the faintest hint of a softening. It won't be a, be a long time till you can feel the warmth or actually see the sun, June probably, but uh, a number of hours before the sun actually rises. But, but there is just that, that softening that tells you the darkness is almost over. Something is changing, even if it's only barely, barely discernible at this stage. Even if you can't feel any of the effects, something is changing. They don't just change for Samuel either. Do you see 4.1? God's word doesn't just come to Samuel, but through Samuel to all Israel. Okay, what do these, uh, these chapters of history have to say to you and me today? Firstly, the, God's judgment is an act of grace. The Lord is a God of grace. The Bible declares that from the beginning to the end. He's a God who shows kindness and compassion to struggling sinners. But where is grace in a passage of judgment. Well, actually, there is grace in the judgment. Uh, The word of judgment on Eli's family is a word of grace to God's people. You see, access to the presence of God was at the tent at Shiloh. The ability to, to find forgiveness through the sacrifices that God had ordained only happened at Shiloh. And so Eli and his family of wickedness stand between desperate, earnest seekers of God and the help they long for. It's a great kindness that God will tear down that barrier. It's a grace to God's people when the Lord judges wicked, abusive leaders and removes them from a position of power and influence. And if you've ever suffered abuse, in particular from a supposed Christian leader, then I hope these are a great comfort to you these verses. They show God sees, God cares, and God acts. God is not on the side of Christian leaders. He's on the side of truth and love and goodness. And God replaces the corrupt leadership of the priest Eli with that of the prophet Samuel, who will anoint the King David, a perfect leader who will ensure God's people always have access to him. God appointed the perfect leader so that struggling sinners like you and me would never be blocked from getting to God's grace, God's mercy, God's love, God's help, God's very presence. So we praise God for our prophet, priest and king, our perfect leader, Jesus. We're out of time, but very, very briefly as we close, just three little practical things. We've hinted at them as we've gone through. Firstly, don't harden your heart. Don't get into the habit of closing your ears when God says uncomfortable, costly things. Because to close your ears is to harden your hearts. And one day, it may prove too late. For all of us, there'll be things where we're tempted to do that, whether it's pursuit of financial comfort or willingness to forgive or or sexual behaviour. There'll be things that we find hard to hear from God and we're tempted to block our ears. Hophni and Phinehas are a frightening warning against doing that. Instead, do what Samuel does. Every time we encounter God's word, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. That's all we need to do. 
Secondly, don't go soft on the sins of leaders. For the good of God's people and God's reputation, his leaders must be held to a higher standard. That means we must take more seriously sins, character flaws, staff, music team, elders, Sunday school teachers, interns, DG leaders, PCC. The conduct of leaders affects everybody. And actually, the last few years, the wider church, we've learned if we won't discipline ungodly leaders, God will do so. And to our shame, he may use the world to expose our sins. So out of love for God and his people, we have to hold leaders to account. And lastly, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. I know some here feel overwhelmed by situations you either live or work in. And it feels oppressively dark where you are and you doubt that God could actually be involved in it or you could ever bring much light to the situation. But hope comes because a little boy says, speak, Lord, your servant's listening. Where the word of God is believed and obeyed, hope comes for God is present where his word is. And however things look from a human perspective, where God is, there is hope. Let's pray. Father God, this is a quite brutal story in many ways that we read. But we thank you for what it reveals of you, that you are a God who is holy. You are a God who will not stand by while your precious people are abused. And so we pray we would be encouraged by your goodness and your justice. And we pray that we, that we would always seek to have open ears to hear as Samuel did. Amen.